Hey everyone and welcome back to the Transsection podcast and today I'm bringing to you my interview with Sheila Bruno and this is episode five of season three, can't believe it. Uh, I've been MIA for a couple of weeks because I injured my hand so apologies for not not uh, releasing this uh, interview, this episode last week as I had intended to do. I'm fine, nothing's broken but it was qu quite bruised and was making things uh, difficult to do so uh, and and it was bandaged up as well so it just slowed everything down and unfortunately the podcast had to wait for an extra week and a bit. Today I'm, I talked to Sheila Bruno and she is the author of Wife After Prison and this is a cause that's really close to my own heart. I've known lots of people uh, who've previously been incarcerated, who've been in prison and um, I have yet to meet somebody in person who's been to prison and come out who wasn't struggling um, and wasn't having some kind of challenge with their mental health or addiction and things like that. So I think this is really, really important. I mean, I'm not a massive fan of the prison system as it is, um, especially in the US, but in general, um, not in the UK anyway, although I've seen some Scandinavian uh, prisons and how they do that. And they, they really are going for rehabilitation rather than punishment. And that's much more uh, aligns with my values. I don't know about you, uh, but I do think that if somebody has served their time and they have come out, then there's not much point in uh, serving time and kind of being rehabilitated if it means that you're then entering society massively struggling all over again and then you know you're much more likely to uh, leave prison uh, statistically with a drug habit even if you don't go in with one and to have worse mental health all these sorts of things so you know I definitely believe in the opportunity to be rehabilitated where that's possible and and where it's not possible um, damage limitation so this is a really really valuable uh, conversation that I had with Sheila I'll just read you a little bio Sheila Bruno is known for giving voice to the psychological impact of incarceration also known as post-incarceration syndrome in 2014 after being apart for 38 years Sheila became reacquainted with her high school sweetheart Kevin Bruno who was incarcerated for 28 of those 38 years. 53 days after their reunion, they were married. In 2016, Kevin became barely recognisable, both in character and in behaviour. With each passing day, his behaviour worsened, leading Sheila to cry out to God, asking, what is happening to my husband? Her kind, caring, loving, affectionate husband was now sliding in and out of depression, easily irritated by seemingly insignificant incidents. Sheila's cry for help was heard by God, which led her to Google the question, can a boy become a man in prison? Up popped two articles by Craig Haney and Terry Gorski, the psychological impact of incarceration and post-incarceration syndrome and relapse. So fast forward to now. And Sheila has reached over 40,000 people in her quest to raise awareness of post-incarceration syndrome. She has made it her mission to provide education about the devastating effects prison has on their loved ones. And after a period of successful mental health treatment, Kevin did improve a lot in his mental health. And uh, we'll talk more about that in the interview. 
So I hope that you'll get a lot out of this interview today. And before we start, as always, go and find us on social media. We're on Facebook, The Transection Podcast, Instagram at Transection Podcast and Twitter at Transection P. And we're even on TikTok at Transection Podcast. And just a little note to say that as, as of this coming Monday, I will be opening my doors to one-on-one coaching. So if you want to know anything about that, if you're in need of somebody who is intersectional, who understands people who are a little bit different, I've helped people who are neurodivergent, people from the LGBTQ community, although that is not a prerequisite, parents and young people. So if you're thinking that you might need help with something, or maybe you want to change your life. I had a, a client recently who wanted to uh, move country. And within 12 sessions, she started off not really knowing what, what she wanted to do or how she was going to get there. And now, and since uh, we finished, she has managed the whole thing and she's moved country and she's gone to do what she wanted to do. And another client who I finished with earlier in, in the year wanted to get a promotion at work and to be better paid for her efforts and since we've worked together and whilst we're working together she did manage to negotiate that and we also put together a very simple and easy to start business plan so that she might be in a position within a short amount of time to put a side hustle in place that could easily take over her earnings from her main job. So it could be practical things like that. It could also be uh, dealing with something that you've not dealt with before. I've helped people also with um, managing and dealing with symptoms of PTSD and things like that. And uh, I think as you, if you've been listening for a while, you know that's something that I dealt with myself. So it's very, very close to my heart and uh, very important. And it's not a fun thing to live with. So if you are in the market looking for someone to help you make that change, then head to my website at mcsharrishill.com and just book a free call and we can have a chat about it. Anyway, without further ado, here is my interview with Sheila. In a time of great change, we're all making efforts to become more ethical, more educated people. The Transaction Podcast interviews people from many different backgrounds to bring different aspects of human rights to life through humour, authenticity and personal stories. We are privileged to get a glimpse into different people's realities and to get first-hand advice and information from people on the front line of great social change. I'm Harris Eddie Hill, inclusive coach, speaker and educator, and this is The Transaction Podcast. Hey everyone and welcome back to this episode of the Transaction Podcast where today I am joined by Sheila Bruno. Hey Sheila, welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. You're so welcome. Um, Sheila wrote a book called Wife After Prison and uh, I have yet to read it Sheila but I'm going to I'm, I, and I love so much of you know I follow you on, on social media and I love so much of what you have to say. Sheila, thank where you. Where did your story start out? Because, I mean, I, I bet if I'd have asked you 10, 15, 20 years ago, you wouldn't have guessed you would, you would be here, right? So what happened? Absolutely not. So my story 
began in, in 2014. I was working overseas in Bagram, Afghanistan. And uh, I had been overseas nearly 10 years. And one day I'm just sitting uh, at my desk and I get a friend request from someone named Kevin Bruno. And I was really, really shocked because Kevin wasn't just some random guy sending me a request. I knew Kevin. See, when I was 16 years old, I was that 16 year old kind of in love with Kevin. And so that's where it started. He hit me up and he and I began to uh, talk via Skype because again, I'm in Afghanistan and he was um, uh, here in Houston, Texas, 8,000 miles away. And so within the first uh, within the first hour of our conversation, Kevin told me the, that he had been to prison. He had actually been to prison twice. Uh, the first time in, uh, he was 20 years old and he had a 10 year sentence and of that 10 years, he did eight and a half years. And he was released in, I think it was 92. And within nine months of his release, he was gone back to prison. He was gone back to prison on a 65 year sentence, which he did 20 of those years back, uh, flat. So collectively he did nearly 30 years of incarceration. So, and, but when he told me that it did face me, cause I understand, you know, that in our youth, younger days, we make dumb mistakes. So that didn't face me at all. So uh, Kevin and I would talk every day. And so the thing is we reunited after 38 years, within seven days, we were uh, engaged. And 53 days later, I came back to the States and we got married amazing yeah yeah who look who does that <laughs> 53 days yeah 53 days later we were married and 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 you know Kevin told me about all of the traumatic childhood experiences he had and when we were in school all I knew was everybody loved Ke Kevin he was just an amazing all-around guys, he's 6'3", you know, just the gentle giant, and everybody loved Kevin, and he told me, he said, when I came to school, I wore a mask. He said, school was a safe space for me, because his childhood was anything but idea, and again, you know, me not knowing anything about trauma, I just like, okay, that was then, that was then, this is now, so let's get married, you know, uh, but um, he began to struggle, he began to struggle, the first two years were amazing, you know, others would envy our relationship, he was just uh, the, the breakfast in bed, the, the flowers, the the sneaker behind you and kiss you on your neck, the baby, what can I do for you today, that type and then going into the third year, I noticed the behavior change. And I said to him one day, I said, you're changing on me. And uh, I said, have, have I changed? And he said, no, you haven't changed. But I, I, he began to be very, very easily irritated about the least things. He would holler at me and that wasn't his character. He was always loving and kind. And, uh, he would hit the counter and hit the wall. Uh, he became sorely depressed. Uh, and I, would re I remember walking by his uh, office at times and he would just sit there. Uh, you could just see 
the sadness and the depression in in uh, his eyes. But uh, his behavior affected me in such a way that I became sorely depressed because I walked on eggshells because I didn't want to say certain things that would tick him off because I didn't understand what he was going through and neither did he. He, did, he didn't understand this person. And uh, I remember him saying, Sheila, I don't like this guy. I don't like this guy, you know? Um, so we went through a, a tough time sending uh, myself to therapy. And uh, eventually he knew that he had, it to, he had to go to get him some help. Yeah. Wow. So do you know why, like, I guess you two have talked since then. Do, is there a reason why, or he, he explained what had happened and why that change had come on? Okay, so Kevin and I, we separated three times, uh, nearly divorced. And uh, so one night during the separation, you know, I was just in bed. I had been in bed for three days. I had uh, closed the, the curtains out. I just wanted the room just dark. I had placed towels at the bottom of the door. I was just in such a bad place. But I remember lying in bed and it was a Friday night and I was just crying, you know. I, I just can still remember my pillow was just soaked with tears. And uh, I was like, God, please help me. Help me and show me What's wrong with my husband? Help me and show me. And so, you know, God has a sense of humor, the God I serve. And it was just like, I heard him say, Google, can a boy become a man in prison? And I jumped up and I grabbed my laptop, which, you know, occupied the bed, the space where Kevin used to stay uh, asleep. It was books and laptops and all of this, because I'm trying to understand. And so anyway, I grabbed my laptop and as fast as I could, I typed, can a boy become a man in prison? And up popped a list of websites. And the very first one was the psychological impact of incarceration by uh, American um, psychologist, Craig Haney. And what I read was what I was living. And the second website was post-incarceration syndrome by another American psychologist, uh, Terry Gorski. And what I read was what I was living. The anger, the isolation, uh, the symptoms of PTSD, uh, every symptom with the exception of uh, 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 drug abuse, because he never used drug or alcohol. So when I read this, I... I, I, I sent him the link and say, hey, can you, can you take a look at this, you know, because I, I see the symptoms. And uh, he, he agreed that he would. And then he called me back and he said, yes. He said, this is what I'm going through. So I now had a name. I now had a name for the behavior post-incarceration syndrome which is a set of mental disorders that occur in those who are currently released uh, I mean, currently incarcerated, released those who have spent a lot of time in solitary confinement. So that helped me out a lot, just giving me a name 
to associate with the, the behavior. And by this time, like I said, I needed support. I needed support for after prison, you know? And so I went online uh, to searching the internet, looking for support for spouses, anybody for the after prison experience. And I couldn't find any. And so one day I went to Facebook. And so in the search bar on Facebook, I typed in prison wives. And when I did, a whole slew of groups popped up. And I was like, wow, I didn't know such a thing exist. So what I did was I joined 26 of those groups. And one day I sit down and I calculated the number of members collectively, and it was over 26,000 people. And so I went into each of the 26 groups. And at first I didn't say anything because I wanted to know the conversation. I just wanted to test the temp temperature in the room. What are they talking about? But nobody was talking about after prison. Nobody was talking about the experience of after prison. And so one day I just, uh, uh, in each of the groups, I just typed, have you heard of post-incarceration syndrome? That's all I put, you know. And then I went back the following days and I was getting all of these no's, no, 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 no. And so when I shared that with Kevin, he and I agreed, we got to talk about this. We got to be transparent about this because it has devastated our lives and destroyed our marriage. So we've got to share. And so he and I began to do Facebook Lives, being very transparent, pulling back the sheets on our relationship. And then the cries start coming in. Oh my God, you know, had I known this 10 years ago, maybe me and my husband would still be married. Or, oh my God, had I known this, you know, uh, 10 years ago, again, we would still be married. Um, and one of the saddest ones that I heard was, had I known this, maybe my husband would still be alive because three days after he got out of prison, he committed suicide. And so everyone was asking the group, you know, what happened in three days? What happened in three days? And I said, no, 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 that's not the question. What happened in prison? that he couldn't live with on the outside. So when I found out that there, weren't, there was not a group that catered, that served, that ministered to family members about the after effects, I created Wife After Prison Private Support Group where there's now over 1300 members in that group. Amazing, that's amazing work. Thank you. Wow. That touched me a bit, actually. Um, <clears throat> so what do you, you know, how, how do you think that Kevin had been so happy for the first couple of years? Like, did he ever share with you, like, what had changed after those first two good years and then what, what had got to him after that? Um, I have to say this. Um, ultimately, it was the responsibility of being the head of the household. And I have to say, you know, for the first, but uh, but the first two, two and a half years of uh, the marriage, uh, like I said, I had been overseas and money wasn't an object. So I know that um, 
prior to marrying me, Kevin had maybe $700 worth of bills per month. And so you get married and you come over and you got a whole household. And uh, so the bills was running up close to 3,000 a little over. And, uh, but I took care of the majority of the things because I didn't want to burden him. Because to me, although he had been out four years, he was still in that reintegration process, right? He was still learning to figure things out. And so, but going into that third year, you know, when things begin to be a little shaky, I said one day to him, I said, I need you to be the head of the household. I need you to take more responsibilities because it was as the roles were reversed. And so this one particular day, I remember saying that to him, I need you to be more responsible. And uh, he, he was getting ready to open the blinds and he turned around and he looked at me and with such a still face, with such a, a sadness, sadness in his eyes. And he said, Sheila, he said, you know what you want in a husband. He said, I don't know if I know how to be that man. And he said, prison strips you of responsibilities. You're told when to get up when to lay down, when to eat, when to shower. He said, I don't know if I need to be that person. And so later on, when we had a conversation about that particular conversation, he said, Sheila, you had me on crutches. He said, you had me propped up on crutches for almost three years. And then you snatched the crutches from under me. And when I did that, then he crumbled. And it was under the pressure of trying to fulfill the role of being the head of the household, the man of the house, the leader of the house, you know? And so that was, that was one of the reasons, uh, you know, that, that caused him the crumble, I mean, to crumble, but not to mention, we have to really, really consider that childhood trauma. Yeah. Childhood trauma undealt with will show up in your life. And so that was another thing. You know, there were certain feelings that uh, when he was young, he was, you know, six, six, uh, uh, six, three at 12 years old. And so he was often picked on. You know, he was often bullied. And so that made him feel some type of way, right? And so when he and I began to clash and I would say some things that associate made him feel like the, the way he felt when he was being bullied, that was a trigger for him. And so he would act out towards me, right? So, I mean, you know, I couldn't be mad at Kevin. After I gained the understanding of uh, trauma, uh, post-incarceration syndrome. I couldn't be mad at him, although I wanted to. I wanted to, you know, for so many, for, you know, I want to say, how dare you do this? And I think maybe one or two times I did say it. How dare you do this to us? How dare you, you know? Because he would apologize to me and he said, you know, she, he said, I'm sorry. Mm. He 
He said, I'm sorry that I pulled you, I dragged you into this messed up life of mine, you know? And so again, I wanted to be angry with him, but I could not be angry with him because of, you know, the experiences that he's had. And that's, a, that's what I tell the, li- the ladies in the groups, you know, have you considered the trauma? And many of them have not. They have not considered the trauma, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's so easy as well to, you know, I think in terms of like gender stereotypes and stuff, men are meant to be kind of these thick skinned, got it together, cool, like nothing bothers me kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. it's just, it's not real, is it? Like we're all, Uh we're all as vulnerable as the next, all of us. Yeah. And one thing that I've found out in the work that I do uh, helping uh, formerly incarcerated men reintegrate back into society. Um, when you're in prison, you are, you know, it's just not normal to show any type of emotions. Showing emotions can get you hurt. Showing emotions can get you killed. So for decades, you know, these emotions are suppressed. Mama died, didn't cry. Daddy died, didn't cry. Sibling died, didn't cry. Didn't process any of that. So the emotions were so packed down. And when you come out of that back gate, it's not as though they reappear, right? And so one guy said to me, he says, I'm so numb. He said, I can't feel anything. He said, and my lady friend, she's taking it personal as though I don't want to be with her. Because some guys coming out of prison, they don't even want intimacy. Wow. You know, they don't. Yeah. And so he says, she's taking it personal. He said, but right now, I just don't feel. So it takes time. You know, you think about this. You've packed something down for years and years and years. You pack this thing down, you know, and it's packed. It's deep down inside of you. And you don't know how to get it out. And this is where a a professional comes in. They help you to loosen that up and then ultimately bring it out so that you can be vulnerable again. Mm -hmm. But being in prison, you know, that's just one uh, uh, thing that, you know, a lot of them said, I, I couldn't show any emotions. And one guy told me, he said, I intentionally, he said, I intentionally turned off my emotions. He said, I worked at it. He said, because the type of time that I had, he said, I knew I was going to lose some relatives. He said, I knew that my mother would die or my father would die. You know, I'm looking at a life sentence. And so he, he intentionally worked on dislocating his his uh, emotions. So when that time came, he wouldn't feel nothing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So Sheila, talk to me about post-incarceration syndrome. Like what does, what does that look like? Or what are the primary um, traits of having it? Yeah. Yeah. So again, like I said, post-incarceration syndrome is a set of mental disorders. And some of the symptoms are, uh, there's what's called social sensory deprivation syndrome 
Okay. And so this is where, and this sets in when a person has spent a lot of time in solitary confinement, confined to their cells, 23 hours a day, sometimes 24 hours a day, no contact with people whatsoever. Right. And so you can imagine being in a restroom, your restroom in your house, no windows, just in there closed up. Imagine being in that for eight years. Imagine being in your restroom for eight years, no contact with nobody, 20 years, no contact with nobody, you know, 39 years. And then they let you out of prison. You're not used to being around people. You're not used to talking to people. And so they let you out into this big world, another world, and you're not used to that. And I was just talking to someone the other day that said, when my friend got out, he committed suicide because he wasn't used to being around people. He was used to being confined. And that's that social sensory deprivation syndrome, right? So another, uh, another one of the symptoms is called institutionalization personality trait. When you're used to doing something, the same thing over and over and over again, again for decades, when you come out, it just doesn't fall off. One guy confided and said that he had did 21 and a half years and uh, within 18 months of his release, his wife had divorced him because he was so institutionalized. They lived in a small apartment and he had set that the living area up like his cell was for all of those years. And when she would ask him to, you know, tidy up or move it and this is the living area, he would then display the PTSD with the, you know, getting angry, you know, hollering, screaming uncontrollably. And uh, she ended up uh, divorcing him. And he, and he said to me, he said, I'm Mrs. Bruno. He said, I love my wife. He said, but I'm messed up. So he was so institutionalized that he was unwilling to, you know, do the things that she wanted him to do. And of course, you know, there's that substance abuse disorder. And a lot of times when they get out, you know, again, many suffer in silence because uh, they don't want anybody. There's, all, there's already an X on their back. And so they don't want to be stigmatized. So they don't want to talk about the mental stress that they're doing, that they're, that, that they're going through. So many of them turn to drugs and alcohol to numb that, to numb that only to fill it again once that high come, they come down off of that high, right? And so then there's um, antisocial personality trait. You know, you don't want to be around people. Again, that kind of ties into that social sensory. You know, one gentleman told me he was released and he had to catch the bus. He had to catch, catch the bus to go uh, to an appoint, uh, appointment. And he said, it was so many people on the bus. And one thing about it, when a person gets out of prison, they've been so conditioned to be in survival mode. 
So when they get out of prison, they're still in survival mode. So they're constantly looking over their shoulders to make sure, you know, no one's trying to attack them. This one particular gentleman said that he was on the bus and the bus was so crowded, it made him paranoid. So he got off the bus and he said, I was at the bus stop for four hours until I found a bus that didn't have a lot of people on the bus. So that's that anti-personality trait. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. So it's it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. But obviously this is your passion, as you've said before. And uh, I see you all the time talking to people. And uh, I, I see it a lot. And actually a lot of my um, black friends in America talk about in their community, there's often this push to not talk about mental health particularly absolutely yeah how yeah. how do you yeah. how do you combat that i mean i already saw a live of yours the other day where you were saying i'm gonna talk about it you can't make me quiet <laughs> yeah because you know what i'm finding out it's just a lack of knowledge hmm. it's a lack of knowledge knowing what mental health is what it's not and i i was talking to uh, someone who went to prison at the age of 15, released at the age of, uh, of 54. He did 39 years in prison. Um, and I said, when you first went to prison at 15, he's an African-American guy. I said, when you went to at 15, did they, did, did they perform some type of mental health diagnosis? Did you have to go through anything, talk to anybody? He said, I did not. I said, okay, so you know, you at one unit at, at 18, you're now, you know, going to another unit. Did you have any type of mental health evaluation? He said, I did not. I said, wait a minute, man. Look, I said, you've been in there 39 years. Have you ever had any type of mental health evaluation? He said, I did not. And I said, well, why didn't you, you know, request that I, I need to talk to somebody? He said, Mrs. Bruno, he said, the reason why I did, he said, is because when I hear someone say mental health, I think that it, it's saying that I'm crazy. And so that's what I'm finding. Their concept of mental health is that they're crazy and they don't want to be stigmatized. But I'm finding out when we debunk all of the myths, this is not, we've all had some type of mental health challenge, you know? So when, when I debunk that, then they're like, yeah, okay. You too, Miss Bruno? Yeah, Miss Bruno went to see a therapist too. Yeah, you know, so that's the thing. And this is the, this is the thing that's irritating to me and what I'm pushing and fighting for is that the re-entry organizations, even the prison systems is there needs to be mental wellness education inside. It needs to be inside, not wait till they get out. Because again, you know, once I begin to share with these guys and talk to these guys, you know, give them little techniques, breathing techniques, count, walk down the street. You know, when you start feeling some type of way, I'm finding that they are more open to receive it. Yeah. yeah. So we've been a we've done a poor poor job on this of educating, you know, bringing awareness to the psychological impact of incarceration, not only 
bringing awareness, but also putting action with that. Awareness without action is just awareness. But when you begin to apply the actions, the how-tos, what can I do? And then on the other side of that, do the work as I'm doing, the advocacy piece. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess this brings on a question of like, I mean, I understand when people say, you know, if somebody's done something terrible, like they've committed a crime against somebody else, that they should be punished. But Mm -hmm. I don't know if this is just me being very empathetic or naive, but I kind of feel like there will be some people who don't care what they've done and they're not capable of remorse and that given the chance they would reoffend. But I would be interested to see actually what proportion of people incarcerated are really like that because I've met plenty of people in my lifetime who uh, were previously incarcerated and were just normal people. And so I kind of feel like, yeah, you can say punishment as much as you want, but actually what do we really want to do? Do we really want to exact some kind of revenge on people or do we want to make society better and healthier and, make sure that these cycles of abuse and trauma and and committing crimes is is actually dealt with are we actually doing anything about that how how do you feel about that with the people that you talk to and the work that you do you know honestly me i feel like that the the prison system is a business yeah you know 40,000 dollars per year per head it's good money right i think that um, some of the prisons uh, do a poor job in rehabilitation they don't offer the necessary courses that could aid and assist in transformation but i've also you know in contact with some some individuals who did 22 years, 25 years, you know, but they worked on themselves. They didn't depend on the system, you know, to rehabilitate them. So they would have versus having their loved ones put money on their books for snacks and all of that, they would have their family members to send them books on uh, personal development, self-care, cognitive behavior so they in turn they worked on themselves you know and that's my thing you know I was talking to a lady the other day and she said he said he wants to change he wants to change when he get out I said no 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 not when he get out because he's coming out to a whole nother world he needs to start doing the work right now and it's possible because I've seen, I've seen, uh, I've seen it happen. I've seen guys that had those big tickets, but they buckled down. And the reason why the majority of them that I've talked to, they said one day they looked at themselves and they didn't like that person. They didn't like that person. And the guys that did the work and did the transformation work inside, they had life sentences. 
and now they are out because they did the work. And when you do do the work, the evidence is going to speak for itself. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, they have. You have to do the work. You cannot depend on the prison system to rehabilitate you. And one thing about this, I, I say, you know, when a person goes before the judge and they're getting ready to be sentenced, you know, oftentimes they say, "We're sending you away because you're a threat to society." But oftentimes they send them back worse in a worse condition than they were before they went in. Yeah. 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 So it's not, it's not benefiting anybody and it's making it worse. Right. And um, I know that in this country, in the UK, um, I've heard that if you don't have a drug problem, when you go into prison, the likelihood is that you're going to have one when you leave. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that is so, uh, that is so prevalent here in the States. Just recently, you know, the, the, the prison system has been shut down here uh, since March last year, 2020. And I read an article said, that's strange because a lot of times they want to pin it on the family members who they are the ones who are bringing the drugs in. But the system, the prison visitation has been locked down for a year, over a year, but they are finding drugs inside the prison. So who's bringing in the drugs? It's magic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Who's bringing in the drug? Family members haven't been there, and so then again, a lot of them, you know. And like one lady said that prior to going in prison, he wasn't on drugs, but now you know, being able, and I guess he he does it to cope, whatever. And now he's on drugs inside of prison. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, really, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I think that some people can go through something really difficult and they can look themselves in the eye and go, how are we going to get out of this? How can we, how can we step up here and and make the best of it and, and come out on top as much as we possibly can? And for other people, they just don't have either that ability or that thought doesn't occur to them. So, yeah. you know, how, how are we going to help those people who, who can't help themselves? Like, what do you think we need to do going forward? You know what? I heard this and, and there's, there's a lot of uh, illiteracy in prison. And one guy, he was sharing his story and he said, uh, I didn't know how to read. He said, when I went to prison, you know, I didn't know how to read. And so he said his cellmate helped him learn how to read. And uh, I think that's where a lot of the problem may lie in uh, a person uh, unable to do the work on themselves because they don't know how to read, right? And so they don't, they don't talk about it. Uh, they, they're not open, they're not willing to be vulnerable to talk about the things in the areas in their lives that they lack in, but these are the tools, these, these are the areas that you need to do the work, if that makes sense. Right? Yeah. And so um, I think that's a lot of the drawback with, with, with that. And another thing is, you know, here in uh, Texas that 
some of the units won't allow you to go to school until you're in the last two years of your sentence. So you got a 14 year sentence, you know? So what do you do from year one to year 12? And then year 13, you can go to school. Does that not make sense of what? Right? It's too late I, by then, I, surely. Yeah. I have an I have a nephew who who is currently incarcerated and, and you know, of course I support him and I said, but look here, you know, we're not gonna just do time. We're gonna do something with this time, you know. So I let the other family members send him money, but I send him books. I send him books on you know, the mind, I send him books on personal de development, self-care. And uh, those are the things that we have to do for our loved ones. Instead of sending them money to buy cupcakes and chips and all of that, you send them something that can help them. And my thing is this also is, you know, uh, there's a lot of manipulation going on in the prison. Uh, one of my uh, group members was killed uh, last, uh, no, uh, December 2019. Her guy got out July of 2019 and December the 23rd, she came up missing only to be uh, found in the trunk of her car on December the 24th, uh, the day before Christmas, leaving behind um, three boys. And so there is that, there is that manipulation piece where guys will, you know, just manipulate women. They call them cash cows. You know, they don't want to do the prison sentence by themselves. So they get them a pen pal that will support them uh, through that sentence. But is that really the right guy for you? You know? And so just recently I had an event, an online event called A Woman's Worth, because I want us to support, but don't be stupid, right? And I want you to recognize the flags, the red flags, and don't try to paint them white, uh, because there are some in prison who have that mentality that I'm just going to use her until I get out, and then I'm gone. It happens all of the time. It's hard, happen all of the time. So I have this kind of love-hate relationship with this thing, you know. I'm loving on the guys because I want you to win. I want you to win when you get out, but you got to take care of your mental, you know, your mental wellness. And then I'm loving on the sisters. I'm loving on them because I want you to know, hey, know your worth. Know your worth. And don't accept nothing less than you deserve. And don't let nobody that's behind bars, don't even have an out date, don't even have an outdate to ruin your life and run your household. How he gonna run your household from prison? How he gonna tell you what you need to do from prison? Come on now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I have this, this love hate thing going on right here. <laughs> but isn't yeah. that, Sheila, isn't that just balanced though? Because I mean, on the one hand, you're you're saying like we want to support you, we want we want you to know that you're loved and that you know good things can happen. Yeah. You've got to put the work in. Yeah. But at the Don't same time that needs such a firm hand with like healthy boundaries, you know, this yes. is where we draw yeah. the line. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, and that's, and that's the deal. I preach boundaries as a matter of fact, I'm getting ready to do a live now on boundaries. You have to have boundaries in life. 
in life, period, we need to have boundaries. And what I tell them, I said, you know, our life is a classroom. We teach people how to treat us, right? And so you need to start setting boundaries with your loved ones. Because, I mean, I hear some of the stories that leaves the, the ladies heartbreak, uh, heartbroken and, and crying and just, you know, losing themselves. So many have said, you know, I'm losing myself. And I get it because I was that person back in 2018. But also prior to me getting married to my husband, I was whole. There was nothing missing, nothing broken in my life, financially strapped, emotionally, mentally, all of that. I was good, right? So I knew what that looked like. So I had I had a, a, a guide. I had a goal. Okay, I need to get back to that chick. I need to get back to that chick. And once I did, you know, I really enforced boundaries, even with my husband. Anything that makes you feel uncomfortable is because you don't have a boundary in place right there. And so that's what I push with the with the ladies now. I said, you know, he's not going to understand it because you've been letting him get by with stuff for 5, 10, 15 years. But you just have to tell him, no, no, baby, you know, I, I'm working on me. So we're not going to have you. You can't talk to me like that no more. And then I said, take yourself out of the equation. So how do you do that? So he's on the phone and he's all in your ear and he's telling you, you better do this. You know, take yourself out the equation. Hey, babe, I'm going to have to talk to you later. You know, that just doesn't agree with my system no more. Hang up the phone. Hang it up. What are you going to do? Come knock at your door? (laughs) Come on. Yeah. 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 It's true. It's true. So yeah. Sheila, tell yeah. me about your, tell me about your book. You wrote a book. Have you had, is this your first book you've ever written or? It's my first book that I wrote. I published it in 2019, started writing it in 2018. And I wrote it to raise awareness. I wrote it because there, I found out, you know, that this information needed to get out uh, about the post-incarceration syndrome. And uh, it should have taken me, could, it could have taken me six months, but it took me over a year to complete it because uh, as I was writing it, the emotions would come up. So I said, no, nah, I can't visit that today. I had to back off. And as I wrote a chapter, I would let my husband, Kevin, read it. And, you know, it just got so weird. I just stopped letting him do that because of the emotions that uh that came forward. And so, yeah, I wrote the book to raise awareness. And one thing that I've done, I've committed to donate a copy of my book to every prison in the U.S. And so far, I've completed eight states. And what brings me the greatest joy is when I receive letters from guys on the inside that says, thank you for writing your book. I now understand what's wrong with me. Or thank you for writing your book. Uh, I'm going to ask my wife, tell my wife to read it so that she can understand me. So uh, it's it's been a gift to so many. It's been an eye opening to so many. And it's doing what it was what it was written to do, to raise awareness. Right. And so I'm like this, very transparent. Kevin and I decided back then, you know, we're, we were going to be very, very transparent And so uh, everything in the book that I wrote, as long as we were doing the things that I wrote about, 
our, our marriage was intact, on point. I used to stand in this very window and couldn't wait till he come home. I was like a kid. Couldn't wait to see that white doodly hit that corner. Right? But when you stop doing the work, things fall apart. Yeah. And so I began to see uh, a change in my husband again. And I was like, oh, God, please, no, not again. But it was happening again. And this time it was a little different. It wasn't as, uh, he wasn't as, I'll, I'll put it like this. Sometimes it's not what a person says, it's what they don't say. When you're used to them saying something and, and they don't say it, you're like, oh, that ain't right. He normally would say something, but I did begin to see a change in him again. Uh, I had to, you know, he crossed the boundary and I, Im I imposed consequences for him ca uh, crossing that boundary. And so, uh, yeah, so I, I, I just have to say it. We're in the process of a divorce right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm like this. I am 40 away from 100, right? Yeah. I celebrate 60 years, I'll be 60 years old this week. I mean, this, this year. And I have work to do. And uh, I just, I just, I just say, no, not again. Yeah. Not again. Yeah. So as, 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 as so many women in the group have said, I had to walk away to save myself. Mm -hmm. And it was just last week that I announced that we were getting, that I had filed for the voice. And when I announced that in the group, you know, it was almost like a Me Too movement because women start uh, posting, I filed too, Me Too, I filed too, you know. And even one lady said to me, she said, Sheila, just hearing you say that is a, release to me she said because I felt like I had to stay in you don't have to you know anything that makes you unhappy anything that makes you uh miserable anything that is an abuse whether mentally emotionally you know you don't have to live your life like that and so the reason why I chose to share that information publicly is because I lead from the front because there's so many ladies who look at what is Sheila doing what for guidance for support and I could not allow them to share their truth and me not share my truth yeah and so yeah so I put that out there yeah it's amazing Sheila I'm um it's been so lovely to talk to you today and I I well, hope that your your work continues and really you know i think i think what you, you're doing is amazing and it's so needed and um, thank you so much I, I i'm just honored to be on your platform on your stage you know uh the and, and i'm so grateful for the international partners that i've had that are opening up their arms to say hey come over here and talk about this because I tell you what, this is just not 
a U.S. thing. This is happening all over the world, but people are not talking about it. And the reason why they're not talking about it is because they're unaware of the psychological impact of incarceration, just like the side effects of medication. Prison has side effects. So I want to thank you for allowing me on your platform today. You're so welcome. It's been a privilege, Sheila. Thank you so much. Hey, and thank you so much for joining us this week and listening to Sheila. Next week, I am very, very excited to bring to you my interview with Josh Richards, who is a future Martian, and he's written about uh, what he would do with his last 10 years on Earth before moving to Mars, because he is one of the people shortlisted for the Mars One project, which is a little bit stalled at the moment, but it's it's still out there. It's, it's um, still waiting for, for some funding and some go ahead. But it's very exciting. Josh is a real big thinker and really pushes himself to the limits of, of what humans are capable of. And, and it, he was absolutely fascinating to speak to. After this interview, uh, I think I, it took me a few hours for my brain to uh, all kind of come back together. And it was also great fun. He's, he is very funny. Uh, just a little reminder that if you haven't signed up to the mailing list, um, please do. You'll get an email every time we release an episode and any other news of things that we're up to. And that's at mooksharrishill.com forward slash transaction. You just put your name and your email address in the green box. That's all you have to do. It takes 10 seconds. And that way we can keep in touch with you and let you know about stuff that's going on. So go and sign up there and we'd love to keep in touch with you. So friends, until next time, have a great week and I will see you there. Bye.